Good morning. It is 10 o'clock, and we need to be in 2 Kings chapter 17 about now. 2 Kings chapter 17, and I have just silenced this annoying but very expensive device, so if you'll do the same with yours, and yes, you at home, if you're watching, don't silence your devices because you won't be able to see us. If you do, or hear us. Second Kings chapter 17. In the last few classes, we looked at the elements of the offense that the children of Israel committed in sinning against the Lord their God. And we broke those down. We saw that they refused to fear the Lord their God who made them. And the key word in that part of the passage was the possessive pronoun there, T-H-E-I-R. The Lord, their God. That means he's in charge of them, if for no other reason but because he made them. And then secondly, they refused to fear the Lord, their God, who delivered them. Thirdly, they feared other gods. And number four, they walked in the statutes of the heathen whom God had cast out from before them. And now for the new part of our study, we'll look at the fifth element of this offense of sinning against the Lord their God. So look with me there. We're in 2 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to look at verse 8. In fact, I'm going to read verses 7 through 8. To get our context. For so it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, which had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the statutes of the heathen, whom the Lord cast out from before the children of Israel, and now the new part, and of the kings of Israel, which they had made. And what that tells us is that there were statutes that the heathen made. Now, these are the nations God cast out, and we would call them the external enemies. If God has cast them out, they don't live among you anymore, and you're still following their statutes, then that would be the result of an external enemy influencing Israel. But the kings of Israel also made statutes. And that's what this means at the end of verse 8 where it says, And of the kings of Israel which they had made, the children of Israel didn't make the kings of Israel. The kings of Israel made statutes. And that's what that means. So not only were the children of Israel walking in the statutes of the heathen, but they also walked in the statutes that the kings of Israel made. That wouldn't have been a bad deal if the kings of Israel made statutes after the Lord. It would have been even better if they didn't feel the need to rewrite the statutes at all, but simply follow the ones God gave them. And so it was bad enough that the children followed the laws of the people whom God cast out, but now they're following the laws that their kings have made that are contrary to God's law. Therein is another problem, and that's the 
internal enemy, the one from within, the one whom the Apostle Paul warned the church about, that the wolves would come from within as well, from without and within. Toward the end of the Revolutionary War, the British general Cornwallis and his army surrendered to George Washington and his army. And General Cornwallis finally returned to England. And then after that point, the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution was ratified. And the rule of England had been thrown off by the colonists. So no more would there be any sugar act or stamp tax or coercive or intolerable acts and all of those other grievances that were listed in the Declaration of Independence before that, no more. The United States, the colonists at that point said, we're not following those laws anymore. And in effect, having thrown out those soldiers, those British soldiers, and I know this happened in stages, it wasn't all done in one day, but they threw off the British rule. And now the United States colonists would be free to make their own currency. And they wouldn't be held as hostages to the British pound. <clears throat> now, how much sense, after all of that, after all of the blood that was shed, the lives that were lost, property that was damaged, how much sense would it make for the now free United States colonists to again subject themselves to paying taxes to the British throne so they could buy and sell. It'd make no sense, would it? And how foolish would it be after obtaining the freedom to make their own currency, how foolish would it be to continue making the currency of the enemies? of the colonists. And yet, Israel did so. When they walked in the statutes of the heathen, which the Lord their God cast out from among them. Listen to, and this, this is just the way mankind has done it, from the garden all the way through the Revolutionary War and in the couple of hundred years since then. But listen to the first few lines of the Declaration of Independence. And listen for how it appeals to God. Not to enemy nations, not to the kings within, but to God. Listen to how the Declaration of Independence appeals to God for the things that mankind should enjoy. And it starts off the, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and nature's God Entitle them. Who gives them those benefits? God. 
a decent respect to the opinions of mankind require that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. Now, this is highbrow English right here, isn't it? This is how they talked and wrote back then. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by, is it the heathen? Is it the kings of their land? No, it's by their creator, with a capital C, with certain unalienable rights. Those are rights you can't ever take away from someone. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now I want you to compare that sentiment that these men who wrote this Declaration of Independence, and that's not all there is to it, but that's, that's the part that's most familiar to people. That's the part that I had to memorize when I was in seventh grade, which is an awfully long time ago. But you compare that sentiment with that of the children of Israel when God delivered them from Egypt. And the children of Israel, like the American colonists, had been under the laws and the cruel treatment of the Egyptians. And as a people... Well before then, God had brought them forth from the loins of their father Jacob, the father of the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. And God had given them all they needed. He gave them life. He provided them liberty and the pursuit of happiness. He did that. And by his grace, they enjoyed every bit of that. And yet Israel... Although they had been brought into bondage for over 400 years and now had been freed from Egyptian bondage, and who led them out? Moses. By whose power? By God's power. Led them out and through that barren land, crossed that Red Sea and through that barren land for 40 years, he sustained them. They never starved. They never died of thirst. And their foot did not swell those 40 years. Their shoes didn't wear out. God did all that, not the heathen nations and not the kings among them. And yet after all of that, three days into the desert, what did the children of Israel do? They longed to go back to Egypt. They longed to return to the flesh pots and the leeks and the onions that their captors had provided them. And when you read that, especially when you read it for the first time, it makes your brow furrow, doesn't it? Just like it does mine right now. Why would people do that? They got so used to the bondage and the darkness of it that the new light they have, that deliverance they have, that literal deliverance from a, a land that held them captive is so strange to them that they'd rather go back to the darkness. And to make matters worse, Israel threw off God's way of leading them. You know, God, it wasn't God's perfect will that a nation have a king over it. It wasn't God's perfect will that Israel have an earthly king. Who did, what did God call Israel? He said, my people. <laughs> These are my people. I will be their God. And they shall be my people. He didn't say, I'll be their God and I'm going to make sure they have a king over them. And hopefully that king will do what it is that I want him to do. 
That wasn't in God's perfect will. So what did the people do in Samuel's day? They demanded a king. They had a prophet, but they demanded a king. God said, all right, I'm going to give you a king, and here's what's going to happen, and you're not going to like it. And they nevertheless said, we want a king. So they got Saul, didn't they? And they didn't like it. They walked in the statutes of the kings of Israel, which they had made. Those kings made these statutes. So the enemy without were the heathen, whom God cast out before them. But the enemy within were the kings, most of them, as we've learned, whose commandments and practices went against the commandments of the Lord. Now looking back, uh, any Christian who studies his or her Bible would have to admit this. I admit it freely. That God's commandments were not only enough for the children of Israel to obey, they would be enough for us to obey. Is there any law that man has added to God's commandments that has made us better, that has improved upon God's perfect design? No. We've messed it up. They didn't need to add to God's laws, and they didn't need to change God's laws. However... Just like the power-hungry politicians all over this world, they did it anyway. If you want to know how far away from God's law mankind is moved, here's just one example. And we could spend years on the different examples of just that one thing. But here's one example. In Leviticus chapter 24... Verses 15 through 16. Leviticus 24, verses 15 through 16. Here's God's commandment through Moses to the children of Israel. And thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth God shall bear his sin. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death. And all the congregation shall certainly stone him as well the stranger as he that is born in the land. When he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. Now further down in that chapter, in verse 22, it says, Ye shall have one manner of law as well for the stranger as for one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. God didn't say anything like, well, you know, these laws tend to have a disproportionate effect on certain people of the population and certain groups and certain economic and racial classes and sexual preference. He said there's one law, and it's for everybody. It's the same. No surprises, no little probation for you, and we won't punish you, and this one goes to jail and this one doesn't. One manner of law for all people. And concerning this one offense, if you blaspheme the Lord, you curse the Lord, you die. That's it. wonder how many people walked around freely using the Lord's name in vain in those days. I bet there weren't many. Because when one did, 
than the rest. It said the congregation shall stone him. It doesn't say they're going to be sent to the court of judicial review or this group or that group. It says the congregation takes care of it. That person blasphemes the Lord. The congregation of Israel would get together and they'd stone him with stones and he'd die and they'd put his body wherever they put it and say, now, anybody else want to do that? That's God. That's not me. That's not an independent Baptist preacher up here trying to make the world feel uncomfortable. I'm just telling you what God's Word said. When God finished giving His law to Israel, that should have been all that was ever necessary, even unto this day. And yet, this wicked country celebrates profanity, blaspheming the Lord, either through foul language or worshiping other gods. And we can't blame the British for this one, can we? And Israel should not have blamed Assyria for their bad behavior. Their own kings had made laws against what God gave the children of Israel in Moses' day. Further applying this lesson about the internal enemy of Israel to their own country, let me say it is rare. And if you've been around long enough, you can testify to this. If you keep up with laws that are made in my business, I have to. I can't keep up with every law that was, that's made, that's proposed. But I try to keep up with the ones that are relevant to my line of work. And it's rare that a law is made that gives more liberty to mankind to do good. It's very rare. In fact, new laws almost always restrict a righteous man's way of living. And they give more liberty to the wicked. You ever notice that? Go back and look at some of the new laws in, in that respect. How many ways do you have to say thou shalt not steal? It was a one-liner in God's Word. And it was very plain, wasn't it? And yet in the Texas Penal Code, chapter 31 is the chapter on theft. And when you get through reading that, you're dizzy. What? They list all these different ways to steal, but if you steal this kind of thing, it's more serious than if you steal this over here. If you burglarize this kind of place, well, it's more serious than if you burglarize this kind of place. So they break it down into theft and burglary and robbery and fraud and securing a document by deception and all these different cute arrest titles. And God had a one-liner for it. Thou shalt not steal. <laughs> and every time we divide and subdivide and make new paragraphs and new punishments and new classes of punishments, we're just flying in the face of God. But that's what our, our kings, our leaders have done. And I've gone into some detail before, several weeks ago, about our tax laws and how they confine and restrict us when we were looking at that, how Israel was confined and restricted by its own bad behavior, but how they confine and restrict us so others can use our money for their own greedy purposes. But many of our leaders, like many of Israel's kings, 
have legalized that which God had forbidden. And they've placed burdens through their laws. They've placed burdens upon us for doing that which God commanded. Here's an example of a law. As we're looking at the internal enemy, Israel's kings and our own as well. Here's an example of a law that burdens the righteous acts of man. It's found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 through 12. 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12, if you'd like to write that down. Where the Apostle Paul wrote to this church the second time, he said, For even when we were with you, this we commanded you, that if any would not work, neither should he eat. For we hear that there are some which walk among you disorderly, working not at all, but are busybodies. And my wife and I were talking this morning about a, a particular situation at an unnamed workplace where a married person and another married person worked in the same building together. And guess what they ended up doing? Each one of them ended up leaving their spouses for the other one and ran off together. Now that happens every day, any town USA, any town across the world. And my comment to her was, if you've got enough time to socialize with another employee at work, then you're not doing your job. We ought to be courteous, friendly to people at work, and if you work with them, be professional. But if you have time to chit-chat and to form a relationship with someone at work while you're on duty, you got too much time on your hands, you are a busybody. And people who don't work at all, it says here that they walk disorderly, they don't work, and they're busybodies. How about all three of those things going into hand? Have you ever either maybe you've been told this or you've told somebody this, somebody who's not doing what they're supposed to, you say, don't you have something you're supposed to be doing? Aren't you supposed to be cleaning your room right now? Yeah. They're not doing what they're supposed to do. And that's what these busybodies were doing in Paul's day. And he said, now, them that are such, in other words, those people who are not working but they're busybodies, what does that tell you? They can do something. They're busybodies. They're walking disorderly. Now, them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. That's the command given to these who were not working but could. They need to work and they need to eat their own bread. Now, that's such a simple concept, isn't it? If you don't work, you don't eat. And before anyone says or before anyone writes in from some liberal place in the country, well, Brother Andy, what about the poor? Have you considered the poor? Yes, I have. Because God has. Well, hear me out anyway and see how following God's commandment would have made things so much easier for everyone, the poor included. And you wouldn't even have to read Dave Ramsey's book, although it is a great help now that we are where we are as a society. Notice that the text said, if any would not work, it would not. 
Not if any could not work, but if any would not work. And this implies strongly, very strongly, I think, that the person in view refused to work, even though he could. So this obviously does not include people who cannot work. But flying in the face of God's simple commandment, our kings, the leaders of our country at every level, have made laws through the years that have not only enabled laziness, but have rewarded it. And what's worse, the people in this country through their representatives have said yes to the king's law and no to God's law about this. They don't want to be seen as unkind or cruel or hard-hearted or selfish. And so these people who would not work, as Paul said, then they willingly accept that which they have not worked for, that which they have not earned. And then they teach their children to do so, and that's where you lose them. Because the person who knows better and refuses to do the right thing is one case. But the one who is taught from a little child all the way up, you don't need to work. Somebody else will do that for you, and they'll get a paycheck. That one's very difficult to help. They've never even seen that life. They don't know what that life is about. I want to give you an example that makes me think that with very few exceptions, most of the people who are getting handouts just don't want to work. There is a 60-year-old Chinese farmer, and his name is Ji Changjin. And you don't know if I said it right. Luke might because he knows Japanese, but none of the rest of you know if I said that right. But he's a 60-year-old Chinese farmer, and when he was 19, he lost both of his legs almost all the way up to his hips. So he was not a candidate for prosthetics at all and probably couldn't afford them. And for over 40 years, he has been the sole provider for his family. Do you know what he does? He's a farmer. He walks on his hands. He has a pair of gloves, and he walks on his hands, and he works with those hands to till the ground and to plant crops and to harvest them and then carry them and feed his family and sell whatever else he can sell to make a little bit of money. And he doesn't have a tractor. He does everything by hand and by hand tools. So I'm sorry if it sounds callous, but I can't feel sorry for you if your lumbago keeps you on the couch and out of the field. Or if your big toe hurts too much for you to stack wood at Atwood's or to round up shopping carts at Brookshire's. It all depends on how bad you want to do it. And our kings have made it too easy for people to scam the system, and guess who pays for it? And that brings us to the other part of the king's laws that flies in the face of God's laws. The verse I read you in 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 12 said... 
Now them that are such, we command and exhort by our Lord Jesus Christ that with quietness they work and eat their own bread. So in those days, the only part of the fruit of their labor that they were to give to someone else was in their tithes and their offerings to the Lord. God had always commanded that of his people. Do you remember when Brother Fulton taught on God's commandment concerning gleaning the corners of the field? And if you don't know what gleaning is, that means the the harvest has been done. I grew up in West Texas out there in Lubbock, and I know what gleaning looks like. When the cotton has been harvested from the field and put into modules and then taken to the gin and, and all those things that happen before that pair of jeans that you have on or that cotton t-shirt you're wearing is made. And if you drive through West Texas, it looks like a snowstorm just hit. There is cotton all over the place on the side of the road. There's still a little bit hanging on a bunch of the stalks. And if somebody goes out there and they pick up those pieces and they pull those leftovers from the stalk, that would be gleaning when it comes to cotton. Well, what God commanded was what Israel was to do when it concerned gleaning. And I want you to notice in here there is also a commandment to the poor and to other groups that are named about something they have to do. Now listen to the text. This is found in Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. I know it's been a long time since we've been in Leviticus on a Sunday afternoon, but this is where it came from, Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. And this would be worth writing down and remembering the next time somebody tells you, well, I can't work, I'll just get my government check, I can't do anything, if they can. It says, And when ye reap the harvest of your land, thou shalt not wholly reap the corners of thy field. Now you hear the two possessive pronouns, your land, your, and thy field, the word thy. Neither shalt thou gather the gleanings of thy harvest. Whose harvest is it? The one who's doing the gathering. And thou shalt not glean thy vineyard, neither shalt thou gather every grape of thy vineyard, Thou shalt leave them for the poor and stranger. I am the Lord your God. Now one of the great things that Pastor pointed out about the teaching of those verses was when he pointed out that the corners of the field and the leftover grapes in the vineyard were left for the poor. And then also for the fatherless and the widow and the stranger, which is contained in another verse. But we're talking about the poor. And what that meant was that the poor had to go to that field and they had to gather the gleanings. They had to do that. Yes, it was left for them, but they had to go gather it. They had to put in the work to get the benefits. Nobody sent them a check. Nobody mailed them a a bushel basket of grapes or barley, or wheat, or what was left over. And they also didn't get to go to the farmer's basket or to his cart where he had gathered his grapes, his barley, his wheat. The poor didn't get to go to his basket and take from it. They had to go to the field 
and get the gleanings themselves. But now, the taxes in our country make it difficult for a man to work in quietness and eat his own bread. The farmer in these days, if the children of Israel obeyed the Lord concerning the matter of gleaning, the farmer could be confident that when he left those gleanings in the field and he took his basket, his cart, his toe sack full of whatever it was back to the house, that nobody was going to steal it from him. That no poor person could come up and say, hey, the law says I have a right to part of what you gleaned out there and that I don't have to do anything to get it. Just hold my hand out. Because that's effectively what happens with your tax dollars when somebody who won't work gets them in the form of some sort of handout. They don't literally come and take them out of your pocket. The government takes it out of your pocket and then the government gives some of it to them, not even all of it. Because some of that gets siphoned off too. You see how crooked it is. And God's law is actually the best solution for unemployment in our country. It really is. It's the best solution for everything. But for unemployment, the problem we have in this country, there would be millions of people who would suddenly be able to work if they could no longer take from another man's basket. Now, during government shutdowns, I have not so secretly rejoiced <laughs> that no more laws can be made right now. Y'all are shut down. No more laws that would be made during that time. You know, when Congress meets in Washington or the state legislature meets in Austin, you can be sure that new laws will be passed. In my lifetime, and I don't know that it's ever happened, but I know in my lifetime, from the moment I first began learning about the legislature, there has never been a time that Congress met or the Texas legislature met where new laws weren't passed. They didn't come together and say, you know what? I think we've got a pretty complete system here. Let's just go out and enforce it instead of making a bunch of new laws. And it's not going to happen. And many of those laws are knee-jerk reactions that are made by representatives who are just grandstanding. They're trying to make a name for themselves. The most dangerous place in the world is the distance between them and a camera. You don't want to get in the way. Some of these new laws, and these representatives generally have no idea what they're talking about. Some lobbyists grease their palm with some money and said, hey, this would, this would be a good law. It'll save the world. It'll save the people. Some of these laws are made to prevent so-called man-made global warming, which all that is, is a, it's a false premise on its face, first of all. But it's nothing more than a way to steal grapes and wheat from your basket. That's all it is. And when the kings of Israel made laws and the people followed them, those laws usually led to both the king and the people walking away from God. They didn't draw them closer to God. You know how they could have been drawn closer to God? What did he say? If, how many times did he say it? If you'll keep my statutes and commandments. Keep them. Guard them. I've already given them to you. You don't need any more. Keep the ones I've given you. He didn't say, if you'll keep 
my statutes and commandments and add to such as you see fit. That's never in there, is it? Keep my statutes and commandments, then these following wonderful things will happen. And God kept his word every time. Israel would repent and turn to him. But here's an example of how the kings make a law that drives the people away from God. Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Daniel chapter 6, verses 6 through 9. Then these presidents and princes assembled together to the king and said thus unto him, King Darius, live forever. All the presidents of the kingdom, the governors and the princes, the counselors and the captains have consulted together to establish a royal statute. Now they have their own law. These are the king's laws we're talking about here that were made in Israel, that the people followed. And to make a firm decree that whosoever shall ask a petition of any god or man for 30 days, save of thee, O king, he shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing that it be not changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which altereth not. Wherefore, King Darius signed the writing and the decree. So Darius's pride led him to sign a law that would penalize Christians like Daniel. That's who they had in mind. That would penalize Christians for praying to God and to asking and for asking God for anything. Well, Daniel disobeyed that law because the king's law flew in the face of God's law. And Daniel wanted to obey the Lord his God and he prayed to God and made supplication to him three times a day what the Bible tells us. And he was sent to the lion's den for violating the king's law, but for honoring God's law. Now there were most likely in that country many people, there were obviously many people, probably most, who feared the king more than they feared God. So they just stopped praying to God rather than facing the lion's den. And just as the law made by Darius led people away from God, except for an obedient person like Daniel, so did the laws of the kings of Israel. In our text in verse 7, remember it said, The children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God. And then those examples of sin were given in verses 7 through 8 where we are now. Had feared other gods, walked in the statutes of the heathen and of the kings of Israel which they had made, so by implication, the statutes of the kings of Israel were contrary to God's word. Otherwise, they would not have been said to have sinned against the Lord their God in this matter. Now look in verse 9, back in our text in 2 Kings 17. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. And they built them high places in all their cities... From the tower of the watchman to the fenced city. Let's look first at this phrase. And the children of Israel did secretly those things that were not right against the Lord their God. Did secretly means they tried to do it under cover. They tried to cover it up. Now isn't that silly? In God's sight, man can't do anything that God doesn't know. 
He knows before it was done. He knows exactly when it happens. He knows everything about it. And he knows what the consequences consequences will be. And he knew all of that before he even made the world, before he ever created man. Psalm chapter 90 was written by Moses. You probably, or maybe you didn't know Moses wrote some of the Psalms, but he wrote this one. And verse 8 says, this is Psalm 90, verse 8. He's speaking to the Lord. Thou hast set our iniquities before thee, our secret sins in the light of thy countenance. So what you think is done in secret is actually done before God's face. Now I bet if we were conscious of that every minute of our lives, which it's, we can't be. We're sinners. We have, we're conscious of all kinds of things, mostly other people's opinions. Mostly what feels good to us, what we like. But if we were fully conscious that everything we do is presently before God's face and his countenance, his visage, lights all of that up, there's no darkness there. He can see everything. It'd make us a whole lot less likely to want to do bad, to sin. One of the law enforcement officers I've worked with in the past went from the street to the narcotics section in an undercover capacity. And rather than wearing a uniform, which would certainly give him away to the crooks, he wore a T-shirt, old jeans, let his hair grow, and tried to act like he was not a cop. And the first time he tried to buy some illegal drugs from a drug dealer in a car, that drug dealer said, you're a cop. He made him just like that. And my friend's mannerisms had given him away. And he was able to safely escape the situation, thankfully. But he didn't last long in narcotics. And it wasn't because he wasn't a good cop, but he just didn't do the undercover thing very well. It didn't come naturally to him. And now he's back on the street as a supervisor in the uniform services and and is a good fella. But a really good undercover officer can go for years without being made. I know some of them. And they were good at what they did. And that's what being made is what we call it when a criminal learns that the person he's been selling dope to or fencing stolen property to is actually a law enforcement officer. And at that time, it is a potentially very dangerous situation. But Israel tried to go undercover with their sin against one against whom nobody has successfully gone undercover. God has made every sinner who was ever born before they were ever born. God's not fooled ever by anyone or anything. And how foolish was it for Israel to think they could sin in secret and that God would not discover them. And with that, we'll stop and pick up with verse 9 again next week and continue enlarging upon this theme of the secret sins of Israel. Let's pray. Lord, you've been so good to teach us your word by your spirit and through the plain reading of the text and looking at other scriptures that comment upon the verse that's in front of us. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And without the Spirit's aid, we'd just read words. Perhaps we'd remember a few things. 
but we wouldn't truly be taught. So I pray we'd take what you've taught us, meditate upon it, and live by it. And we pray for our pastor during the next hour that you would also give him that same liberty to speak and to present truth to these people who are hungry for it. In Jesus' name.